Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the youth director here at Sardis Fellowship Baptist Church. This week, Pastor Rod Happel finishes off our sermon series, Exploring the Book of Jonah. Thank you for listening, and enjoy! Uh, as we're coming to the final message in Jonah, chapter 4, I have the privilege of closing off this very unique and um, curious book, and sometimes we wrestle with what's the message. And we might do that again here this morning. And so, because there is a wrestling with not only what is the message, but how does it apply to my life, I want to pray and ask God to open our ears to hear this message. So join me in your heart as I lead us in pray. prayer. Father, as we do come to your word, we want to hear your voice speaking to us. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear and give us hearts to receive what it is that you want us to understand. So we commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We uh, titled this Jonah, A Reluctant Prophet, and uh, that title kind of fits right up into the end of chapter 3. But you know, it kind of starts to go a little bit sideways in chapter 4, because something happens in chapter 4 that really makes you scratch your head. In chapter 1, when Joel was preaching on chapter 1, we kind of identify a bit with the fact that Jonah might be a little bit afraid to take this message that God has given him and go into an enemy city and proclaim to them that there's going to be destruction unless they repent. I think we're a little bit sympathetic. We cut him some slack that he runs the opposite direction, catches a ship and goes in to Tarshish like heading away. Uh, we, we struggle with that, right? And, and I think that we can put ourselves in his shoes and kind of go, okay, we, we can identify with maybe what he's going through in chapter one. And then in chapter two, we marvel at God's kind of incredible provision of uh, this large fish that swallows Jonah after he's been thrown into the sea by the sailors. And then there he repents and we celebrate his repentance because now he's back on mission with God. God has a wonderful plan for your life. You remember when David Lee preached that? And he said, it's time to get back on mission with God for what God's plan is. And Jonah was willing to do that. And so we kind of celebrate that. We can identify with what it means to get back on mission with God. And then we come to chapter 3. And last week, Pastor Tim's preaching about when the message, which was feebly given in Hebrew, five words, 40 days, repent, or God's going to destroy you. It doesn't really look like Jonah's heart is in this, but Jonah at least is courageous enough and willing to go into the city and actually deliver the message from God. And the people repent. And from that come times of refreshing, and Tim was challenging us. And we might look at that and go, yeah, I see the parallel to my life. I see how God wants to bring a time of refreshing in my own life, and so we kind of identify with that. And now we come to chapter 4, and we come up against something, and we go, what? Jonah's anger towards God. It seems like he is more than a reluctant prophet. It seems like he's just not on board at all. So chapter 3 ended this way, when God saw what they, the people of Nineveh, did, and how they turned from their evil ways, then he, God, relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So at this point, you would assume that Jonah, the prophet of God, bringing this message to Assyria, seeing this kind of an outcome, would celebrate. Yes! Hooray! Success! You know, the great missionary who came with the message has a great revival, and then he goes back and he puts in his prayer letter and sends it to his supporters, right? You got to hear about this. It's amazing. But that's not how Jonah replies or responds. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And we kind of think, really? To Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Well, who did it not seem wrong to? Right? Well, it didn't seem wrong to God, because that was his plan. 
And it didn't seem wrong to the Assyrians because they were the recipients of God's compassion and God's grace and his mercy and his relenting from imminent destruction. So it didn't seem wrong to them. But for some reason, for Jonah, this seemed wrong to him and he became very angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home in Israel? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Really? <laughs> this is that bad, Jonah, that it's better for you to die than to live? He gets so angry that he'd rather die. When Joel preached, there were parallels from that chapter one about God's will that we could incorporate. When Dave preached, there were parallels about getting on mission with God. And when Tim preached, there's parallels about repenting and times of refreshing. But here I am with chapter four, and you might be wondering, what's the parallel to my life? Because I don't see myself in Jonah today. I don't think I would respond the way Jonah did. It's a great big leap we might feel between how he responds and how I might have responded. But God is patient. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So this is round one of God asking him this question, is it right for you to be angry? Now Jonah does not reply at this point. He doesn't actually give an answer to God, but there's an action here. It looks to us that instead of answering God, he takes a self -right, his self-righteousness and his self-pity and that attitude that's bad outside the city. He perches himself in a place where he can watch and wait to see, you know, this 40-day time period, however long he's waiting to see what God is actually going to do. But it's very clear that he's hoping for destruction. Jonah wants to see a symphony of fire. Ever been down to Vancouver for those? That's when the fireworks and the barges go off. It goes all over the world, by the way. They do these symphony of fires. He's wanting to probably see what he's read about in the time of Abraham when, you know, God rains down sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Or maybe in the time of Moses where the people disobey and God kind of really brings kind of a punishment on them in a, a very graphic manner, an immediate fashion. He's wanting his enemies to be wiped out. He's sitting there on the side of that hill just waiting for God to do something bad to his enemies. But he's angry. He's angry at God because of this whole scenario. He could see it ahead of time. He knew in his heart that God was a gracious and compassionate God who relented when people repented. And so he could foresee that this would be the outcome, that his enemies would not be wiped out by God. Can you imagine? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from, Satan, uh, from sending calamity. I just hate a God like that. Who wants to worship a God that does that? This teaching on God's character, that portion right there, comes out of Exodus 34. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament Bible, you'll know how central that description of God is to the understanding of the faith of the Israelite people. In Exodus 34, the setting is Mount Sinai. Uh, not the first time Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God because remember he sees the golden calf and they've gone back to pagan worship and he breaks those ones. It's the second time he goes up to God and God's going to give him again those Ten Commandments to take down to his people. 
And God says to Moses at that time, he gives him his name. And then he proclaims to Moses his character. And this is how he says it. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And that's what's happening right here in this situation with this pagan nation. It's obvious that Jonah's okay if it's happening to Israel, but he does not think it's right that it should be happening to this other nation. You would think that his response, understanding the the character of God and seeing God's patience and his relenting from bringing destruction on Nineveh would be one where he just says, yes, that's our God. He is true to his character. But that's not what he does. He's angry. He actually says he's very angry. And he's still hoping that God will zap the people of Nineveh. He's out in his shelter. Sure, there's a bit of shade, but it's hot there. He's starting to swelter in the heat. He's watching and he's waiting. And God brings an object lesson to him. A lesson that he's wanting Jonah to learn something from. And we puzzle over this one. So let's take a look at this next part together. What's going on here? Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant. He made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. I think this is Jonah's go-to thought when he's having a bad day. You know, when things just don't work out the way I wanted to, I'd just rather die. I don't know what his, you know, makeup is. But he definitely repeats this phrase a lot. What's your go-to phrase when you're having a bad day? Oh, we don't do that. Not out loud anyways. Again, the patience of God. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Oh, you sniveling, whining. (laughs) But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And the book ends. What's going on here? Round two of questioning. Is it right for you to be angry? And this time, in the object lesson that God is giving to Jonah, he says about the plant. So he's trying to get Jonah to understand something about the plant that's going to help him understand something about God's actions towards Nineveh. Three times it says God provided something. He provided a plant, he provided a worm, and he provided a scorching wind. (laughs) Now, we don't really think of provision in way of worms and scorching winds. We think of provision like Jonah in the way of a good plant, right? So Jonah gets a plant. He's very happy with the plant. He didn't do anything to cause the plant to grow. He didn't plant the seed. He didn't water it. He didn't make it grow. It just came up overnight. And yet, when it's taken away from him as quick as it was given to him, he doesn't see it as God's provision, right? God provides, and we interpret. And when it's good, we're happy. 
And when it's not good, we're not happy. Jonah was very happy when he saw it was good. He was not very happy when he saw that it was bad. So what's the point of this illustration that God has for Jonah? He's trying to challenge Jonah with the fact that if you didn't have any control over the fact that the plant grows overnight and dies overnight, yet I as God have control over it. I have the power and ability to do things, Jonah, that you don't have to do. I have the power and ability to understand things, Jonah, that you don't understand. Jonah, you care about a plant more than you do the people of Nineveh. Your answer to the question about the plant should have been no. I don't have the right to be angry about the plant, just as I don't have the right to be angry about you showing compassion to the people of Nineveh. That was the correlation. A plant is temporal. The people of Nineveh are eternal. Things of this world are here today and gone tomorrow. But the people that God has died for are for eternity. Jonah, where is your heart in understanding and distinguishing between something that doesn't matter and something that matters eternally? So Jonah's wrestling with that. And I think now we get a little bit closer, right? We get a little bit closer to understanding the application to our own lives. Because I think we struggle with that. We struggle with our own understanding of the things in this world that are passing, that we put so much stock in. Until those moments where we reflect and go, oh my goodness, what am I doing? That doesn't last. Why am I missing the things of greater value? We can do that. We can identify with Jonah there, where we put a lot of our energy and our hope in something that is just fading and passing anyways, and we can miss out on that which is the better, that which is eternal, that which is of God and last. I mean, it's things like our relationship with God. Why do we put so much time and energy into sports, convicted, and not more time into meeting with my Lord? Why, why do I put things ahead of my most important relationships? my spouse, my kids, my family, whatever that looks like for you. People in my neighborhood, people who I work with, people who I meet at my place of play or where I go to school. Why, why is it that I don't see them maybe as important as God would see them? So we have this same kind of struggle in our own hearts about, about wrestling with putting our time and energies and concerns against something that is temporal and passing versus something that is eternal. There's a guy named Tim Mackey. Many of you will know the name. He's actually the founder of what's called Bible Project, where he takes a lot of stories and narrates them and draws pictures and stuff like that and helps you kind of get the point. He made this point about, about this book. He said the subversive story, the whole story of Jonah is a bit subversive, of a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. And when I heard that, a rebellious prophet, yeah, I see that, who hates God, for loving his enemies. Well, that's pretty descriptive of chapter four right here. It seems like Jonah, in his anger, is hating the fact that God loves his enemies. And when it's distilled down to a phrase like that, in a very simple form, all of a sudden it jumps off the page as to how obviously wrong the attitude of Jonah is towards God, the things he thinks, the things he feels, and the way he acts. But then I stop and I think for myself in my life, how many times do I justify the way I think, the way I feel, and my actions, but all I would need is a different perspective, something a little more objective, or maybe even just a good night's sleep, and I'd be able to see the situation much differently. Do you follow? So I do this. 
In the moment, I stew on it. I get all worked up. And we care more for temporal elements of life than that which really matters. We can find ourselves fighting to maintain a system in this world that won't last, while missing the opportunity to share the love of God with the people who will live for eternity, either with God or without him. Do we view our enemies with a similar hatred that Jonah does his? I mean, how do we see people who don't know God, who in a way are enemies of the gospel or in a way enemies of a way of life or of righteousness or of a moral value? How do we see those people? I'm preaching to myself today as much as anyone else in this room. I think that we might not vocalize some things that we think in our minds when it comes to thinking about God and his, the extent of his love and compassion for people that I don't necessarily love or appreciate. The biggest irony in this whole situation is that Jonah, in his attitude towards God, his anger about God being a compassionate and kind and forgiving God, he condemns himself because Jonah is one of the enemies of God. I mean, without God showing his love and compassion towards the nation of Israel, Jonah, you wouldn't be on the right side of this equation. You should understand, Jonah, what it means to be an enemy of God and to be loved by God, and you should be rejoicing about his compassion that is shown towards your enemies. That's the point here. There's an irony there. The New Testament tells us very clearly that outside of Jesus Christ, we're, we're just naturally in our sinful state on the opposite side, in the enemy camp of God. It took what Jesus did to bring us into God's camp. In fact, in Colossians 1.21, it says, once you were alienated from God, you were in that enemy camp, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. I mean, we thought the same way as anyone that doesn't know God today. We were in that camp. Now, I know some of you have grown up in Christian homes, and so it's a little bit harder to find where was that line. But any of us who knows our own sinfulness know that without Jesus Christ in our life, that's where we are. Therefore, Jonah, to be angry that God shows compassion to his enemies, begs a question. Well, Jonah, if he doesn't, what makes you think that he'll have compassion on you? We want God's justice brought against others while wanting his mercy and grace shown towards ourselves. We might think, but I'm a Christian. I'm on God's side. Those people aren't. Well, yes, if you're a Christian, then you should be firsthand knowing the undeserving mercy and grace of God in your own life that you now wish and desire for someone else to know for themselves. That's our starting point. There's a song that was written years ago by a band in the 80s Christian group. It said, let your first thought, let your very first thought be love. I don't think the music was that great, but I've remembered that line all my life because it's so challenging. Because I don't think naturally when I bump up against someone that I think maybe isn't in keeping with God, my first thought might not be love. I I think that that's a challenge. Let your first thought, let your very first thought be love. Let it be in keeping with the heart of God and how he cares and loves for people. Just a few weeks ago, I was hanging out with a friend of mine in our congregation, and uh, he shared with me a bit of his life story. And it was a difficult upbringing, an incredibly sad and hard kind of childhood years. He shared right through into his 30s. 
of how he found God or how God found him, and he experienced God's mercy and grace in his own life that spared him from inevitable destruction. He was hanging out with the wrong people, doing the wrong things, and it could have been the kind of scenario that led to death. After experiencing the transformative power of God in his life at age 25, he then became the recipient of the blessings that have come from knowing Christ and his salvation in his life. He knows firsthand the difference it made for Christ to save him from where his life was headed. He told me, you know when you drive down the road and you might see a homeless person pushing a shopping cart or another person that's strung out on drugs on the side of the road and you can just tell? You might have a negative thought towards that person or a judgmental thought. He said, I don't think that. I see me. I see what my life was and what I would be if it wasn't for God's grace in my life. Just like me, each one of them has a story that has got them to where they are. And it was only by God's grace that my life didn't end there. Do we care more about the plant than we do about the people. Tim Mackey also said that as a summary question at the end of how this story just ends, there's kind of a question that the readers are having to wrestle with for themselves. Whoever reads this story, whoever hears this story read to them, those of us here today, thousands of years later, reading this story, we are wrestling with, are we okay with the fact that God loves our enemies? Are we okay with that? Because we should say yes and be pleased that God loves his enemies because I'm one of them. But if we think that we don't need it because we're good people, at least we don't need this as much as someone else, I think if that's our thought, we're missing the gospel. It's a level playing field. We have a problem with sin. It works its way out in our lives. And without the restraining nature of God and his mercy in our own lives, our story could be that one. Richard reminded us that we needed Jesus to die for us, on behalf of us. That's what he said. It's good. Not just for evil people, but for good people. Maybe that's a hard one for you to swallow, but you need to understand that our goodness in the eyes of God is as rotten to the core of our being as someone else that we would deem not good. Let me put it to you another way. If you don't need the cross, then you can feel free to judge others. But if you know that you need the cross then you celebrate when God relents from impending judgment and shows compassion on those who we think don't deserve it. Do you follow that? If you know the gospel, you don't have a problem with this message and the understanding. It's just a challenge for us to live it out. That's what we're called to do. I I want to encourage this congregation as we head into the fall, we're going to be talking about our vision statement. We're going to start next week on kickoff Sunday. It's about the transformative work of God in our lives. And sometimes we just don't actually talk that way enough. And sometimes we think, yeah, it's not a major transformation. Well, let me tell you something. 
each and every one of us where God's grace has been applied to our life is an absolute transformation because what Jesus did at the cross, he did on my behalf, not to save me halfway, but to save me completely. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the fact that we have a value about sharing the gospel. And we need to be people who understand, opposite of the character of Jonah, that we'd be quick to say, sure, Lord, I'll be your person to bring that message. And again, I don't want to pretend that that's easy to do. There's challenges around that. We're going to talk about it. Are we okay with the fact that God loves our enemies and he calls us to be people to bring his good message to them? Let us not forget the truth of this passage that Paul writes in Colossians where he says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, which we've celebrated here today. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's transformation. That's how God sees you because you're in Jesus Christ. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because without it, I have no hope in this life. I have no hope for eternity. Let's celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ and let's share it with those around us. Let's think about the prophet Jonah and remind ourselves that we don't want to be reluctant. We want to be quick to say yes to God. We want to be quick to say yes in a moment when maybe normally we would say no, but we know why Jesus Christ died. Let's say yes because Jesus said yes to each of us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we stand in your presence, we are grateful for the fact that Jesus died for each and every one of us and for each and every person on this planet. And at times we just wrestle with the situations we find ourselves in, with things that morally stand against your goodness, with things that seem to be just wrong, with a violent nature in some and with um, people who have a bent towards destruction and we can find ourselves hating our enemies. But you've called us to bring a message of hope, of love, of peace. And so I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to do that which we can't, to bring that message to those around us. Help us to have eyes to see, help us to have ears to hear, and help us to have hearts to receive what you want us to do. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.